Welcome to another episode of the SAEM Rams Ask a Chair podcast series. My name is Hamza Ajaz. I'm your host today, and I'm joined by Dr. Marie Carmel Ellie, who is a department chair at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Hamza. Most definitely. Let's start from the beginning. What drew you to the field of emergency medicine? So it turns out that when I was in medical school, I had a lot of interest in a lot of different areas. I was interested in OB, GYN, internal medicine, psychiatry. After going through a series of interviews with chairs in various departments, I finally landed in the office of the chair of emergency medicine. His name was Dr. Lucchese. It was a very brief session with him, about half an hour, but I asked him a little bit about what he did every day. He said, well, you know, it's a lot of things, but let me tell you something. When I wake up in the morning, my daughter asked me whether or not I feel like I'm the best doctor in the world. And I do. I really feel as if every time I walk into work that I'm doing the best possible work that a doctor can do. And I was just so moved by his authenticity. And I don't know that I had met a single chairman (laughs) up to that point that had that degree of enthusiasm about what they did. And I thought, and I was extremely inspired. I thought, well, if there was even an ounce of truth to what that is, and if I could even have a little bit of that for the rest of my career, I'm going to pursue it. He encouraged me to do a two-week elective as a third-year medical student. I did, and I absolutely loved it. I love the fact that there were so many things that I had learned along the way, and I'd be able to use them all, whether it was a case of a patient that was pregnant, so I could use the skills from OBGYN, or a patient that had a foreign body in their eye, and so I could utilize a little bit of what I'd learned in ophthalmology, trauma and internal medicine. But honestly, I think that what ultimately drew me to emergency medicine was a sense that it was a tabula rasa, right? So I had a clean slate, I'd get to meet the patient, and I thought there was something really moving about being able to establish a relationship with a patient in a very short period of time and using that framework for learning how to best take care of someone. I thought it was very challenging. And I also thought that it would give me an opportunity to take care of all kinds of patients, not just the patients that were scheduled to meet me that day, but patients who perhaps had unscheduled visits. And that I was really drawn by. I thought it was a real challenge. And I thought that it also helped to address or perhaps help me to fulfill some of my civically minded desires to provide service to the community. That's very moving. That's, I'm so glad you, you shared that. But what I'm hearing is you were drawn to the fact that you get to meet patients in brief snapshots of different parts of their lives and you get to you know, interact with them. And sometimes, you know, as we often hear, like in the worst moments or the worst days of their lives, and you get that opportunity, even though it's a clean slate, to make that impact to provide that care, to stabilize them, or to reassure them that whatever they're here for isn't necessarily going to kill them or provide them that reassurance. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate you sharing that. That's amazing. I want to transition a little bit to some of your interests within medicine. I noticed that you're triple boarded in emergency medicine, critical care, hospice, and palliative care as well. Walk me through that. How did that happen? Well, it's really interesting. I guess at some point during my early training and residency, I started seeing patterns that would ultimately lend themselves to what we has evolved in emergency medicine today. For instance, critical care had always been an interest of mine, but what really drew me to critical care was there was a patient that we were taking care of, my my attending and I, at one o'clock in the morning, and uh, the patient was exceedingly ill. We had resuscitated the patient, and ultimately, I decided the patient needed to go to the ICU. The ICU was a bit full, but they said that they would admit the patient shortly. The patient waited a little bit longer than we expected. 
wasn't a half an hour, wasn't an hour, wasn't two hours, but we kept on taking care of the patient. And at some point, my attending was really, really concerned that the patient had been had not gone to the ICU yet. I, at the time, had reflected on this and I shared with my attending that, well, at one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning in the hospital, there is a PGY2 upstairs in the ICU with maybe another intern or another PGY2. And there's probably more talent and expertise right here in the emergency department than upstairs in the ICU. I remember him saying, Carmel, the patient needs to go upstairs right now. And what I saw was perhaps a little bit of anxiety. And that anxiety came from a space where while we were taught in emergency medicine to provide the initial resuscitation for these patients, it was actually outside of our scope of practice to do anything beyond that. So if the patient had to wait a little bit longer, then what? Who was going to take care of the patient? What do you do next? And so I thought, well, if, there, if that were to ever happen to me again, I would want to know what the next steps are. I'd want to make sure that that patient had not just the acute resuscitation, but also the ongoing, the opportunity for ongoing resuscitation. So in a way, I suppose I, I probably foresaw the future in knowing that boarding was a prote- potentially going to impact our critically ill population and needed to make sure that we had that scope of practice in emergency medicine. So I did some research. I spoke to my program director at the time. It was fairly new. There were very few people doing this. There were a lot of <laughs> opinions about whether or not I should pursue this, especially because at the time there was no board certification associated with it. And so there were some risks. I could pursue this training and actually never do anything with it. And and so uh, I decided to go ahead and do it. So I went to shock trauma, trained there, and had one of the most exciting years of my career. There was no question. It was also one of the most successful years in my career. And and I know for a fact that the secret to my success in a trauma-critical care fellowship was the fact that I was an emergency physician. And I wasn't alone, alone. There were three others there with me. And we all ended up going out to our various institutions and practiced. But I think that today, that movement towards critical care training in emergency medicine has absolutely evolved and has added value to the specialty. You can't go to a single emergency department now and not know how to take care of patients, not know how to resuscitate a septic shock patient beyond the first hour of resuscitation. That is a thing now. We understand how to do that. And I want to definitely acknowledge and thank those colleagues, stakeholders, partners in anesthesia, surgery, medicine, all pulmonary, that really took a step forward in engaging emergency medicine and ensuring that we had a platform for that education because it really has helped to save countless lives in the country. I cannot say that better myself. I definitely agree. In terms of now the, the third part of that, right? The the hospice and pal- palliative care. Can you please talk to me a little bit more about that as well, please? Sure. So as it turns out, as exciting as my trauma and care fellowship was, about halfway through, I have to preface this with the fact that I was training in one of the most intense environments in the, in the nation, or perhaps even in the world. Our patients were exceedingly ill. Death was a part of our, our daily lives. Patients were flown in from the tri-state area, but also from outside of the country because they were just that ill when they could not be managed elsewhere. And so we understood that sometimes our patients would not survive. But would you believe that we never had these conversations with patients or their families? They'd come into the hospital. We knew that they were exceedingly ill. We'd be scared that they would not survive. And yet we never talked about it. We talked about it as they died or after the death occurred. There really wasn't a conversation walking patients and their families through 
the prospects of what it would look like to be critically ill, to be in pain, to suffer, and to potentially die as a, as a consequence of that. So halfway through my fellowship, I was on the ICU and one of our attendings had come on board and I could hear the nurses. It was the first time I was working with this attending. He was an anesthesiologist and I could hear the nurses gossiping in the background. Oh, it's Dr. Jeff, they said. And I thought, oh, boy, this is going to be a, an attending that clearly doesn't have the skills to, to train me, right? And of course, that never happened up to that point. I'm thinking to myself, this is not going to be a great month, right? But it turns out it was one of the best months because what he was willing to do is he was willing to have an honest conversation with families about the prospect that they might not survive, their loved one might not survive. I saw him do this for the first time um, during my fellowship, and I pulled him aside and said, explain to me what that was. I can't say that I've ever seen that before. And his response to me was, well, that's part of the palliative care continuum, right? And I asked what that was, and he explained that it was the transition of aggressive care to that which provided comfort. And sometimes families preferred that. It also, it starts with communication, having honest communication with families and giving them some choices in their care. Again, not a concept that I had ever understood up to that point, because up to that point, we were making many of the decisions for our patients. And quite frankly, it was, it was rather paternalistic. We were telling patients what needed to happen, not necessarily negotiating care with them based on their desires or their preferences. After working with him that month, I asked to spend some time with him over the next few months, and he taught me everything he knew. All the resources, told me that there were no fellowships, but certainly provided me with all the training and uh, perhaps the resources that I could engage in if I wanted to practice this palliative care in other spaces after I graduated. And I knew for a fact uh, that I would be practicing in the emergency department with palliative care. I knew that I'd be able to bring it to the ICU. Upon graduating from my fellowship for critical care and trauma, in my first job, I requested the chair of medicine, because I was in the medical ICU at the time, to integrate a family support counseling or consultation service as part of my ICU service. And he thought it was fine. I'll tell you that my peers thought I was perhaps a little bit, let's see, I want to come up with the right word for this, but I think it was not something that people were very comfortable with. Let's just say that. It was a thing that I was doing for a while and everyone watched, but didn't comment. And after about three months of rotating in the ICU, my colleagues started actually referring patients to me and saying, oh, I held this patient on service for you for a few days because I knew you were coming on board. Please go to beds 12 and 15 because their families really need to talk to you. It became actually gained a lot of popularity in terms of the, the concept of talking to families. And eventually we were able to engage case managers our social workers, and other physicians. And in fact, one other physician on the ICU service decided that they also wanted to pursue palliative care. So we basically started a fledgling process consulting service in the ICU. Something similar was also happening in the surgical ICU. Another physician there was leading a clinical trial in palliative care for trauma surgical patients. And yeah, it was just a really wonderful way for me to integrate that into our critically ill patients. But eventually, we were bringing it down to the emergency department as well. So we were working in New York, and there were a lot of patients that were presenting who had basically, as a consequence of their social determinants of health, really had poor outcomes. As an example, there was a very high rate of undiagnosed HIV in the community, such that many patients were presenting with AIDS in the emergency department. And having conversations around 
options, next steps, and perhaps even a prospect of not surviving was devastating to patients. And physicians didn't necessarily have the skill set to have those conversations. And it wasn't just that population. They're patients with oncologic emergencies that had advanced disease that had been managed by their oncologists for months getting chemotherapy, but never understood that the chemotherapy was palliative and not curative. And they were learning it for this. They were learning about this for the first time in the emergency department. Those were opportunities that we had as emergency physicians to have those compassionate conversations, so that they could start making decisions about their healthcare in advance of going upstairs. In many ways, practicing emergency medicine, critical care, and palliative care really all made sense. In fact, fact, it makes most sense in the emergency department because we can do all of those things there. Yeah, it's, and that's incredible, right? Like, and that's what I find. So beautiful about emergency medicine as well is that you can do a fellowship in toxicology, in critical care, in hospice palliative care, in ultrasound, but it starts in the emergency department, right? Where like you can do all those things and you can bring that, which you learn on those fellowships or those experiences to the patients in the emergency department and enhance, and enhance the care of those patients at the bedside as well, starting off from when they first enter the door and continue that as they progress in the department. And through the entire hospital system as well. Mm-hmm. So it's incredible to hear your journey of how you found all three of those specialties and how you've integrated all of them within the patients that we care for in the ED. I'm going to transition a little bit now to a little bit of the theme that I'm hearing about a lot of firsts that you've accomplished in your life. My understanding is you are the first Black female chair in emergency medicine. It's sad that we've come this far and that is only now we're transitioning to see this. And it's often said that it's hard to visualize something or to become something if you can't see it if, or if you can't see that. You're the first in this circumstance. So can you please walk me through like who you looked up to in leadership as role models, as mentors that helped pave the path for you to get to where you are today? Thank you for that question because it's so true. It's really hard to see yourself in a position if there's not enough adequate diversity, especially now that I'm in a position that I am right now. But there's always an opportunity for us to think about how we can diversify our workforce, right? And how to diversify just people from different spaces in order to really inform the specialty, really to advance that. We always talk about mentors, sponsors, and I've had all of those along the way. And I'll say that I I wouldn't be here today without those individuals. My mentorship started very early on in residency. My program directors like Andy Shigoda and Richardson who were extremely innovative and were engaged in research, were mentors of mine and people that I looked up to. They were great leaders. At the time, my chair was Shelly Jacobson. So very early on as a resident, there were people that I worked with that provided me with a sense of, of what my career outlook should look like. Now, I can't say that I ever envisioned being a chair Probably even like the year before I became a chair, I couldn't envision being a chair. But I will say this, my mentors have come from different walks of life and different disciplines, and they've each provided me with some aspect of my personal and professional development. And as I develop and as I speak to these individuals who knew knew a lot about me, they actually were able to identify opportunities for me and, and felt that I was ready. In fact, one of my mentors, who's still my mentor today, he was the one that said, you know, you really should start thinking about being a chair. And I thought, where would you come up with that idea? Sometimes other people have to, some other people in your life really have to be the ones that come to you and say, you know, I think this is a good idea. And when I talk about sponsors, I'm talking about people that are willing to use their political and social capital to get you to meet people so that you can build your network. 
certainly being a chairer is about building relationships, not only with your department, but outside of your department and within the specialty. So having people around me that were willing to extend their social and political capital in order for me to advance and progress has essentially been the secret of my success. Those chairs out there, I mean, I'm sitting on the shoulders of giants. I mean, I am so inspired every time I go to these meetings because they have really paved the path for people like me. I'm so proud of this opportunity, but really it's, it's because of them. I think it's the folks that are at this conference today that envision the future of leadership that knew that someone like me would be here today. And so I'm extremely hopeful and confident that there will be more people that look like me and others that will be engaged in leadership in order to you know, help our entire discipline to progress. Right on. That's very eloquently stated. Really appreciate that. Thank you. I want to now get a little bit of advice from you as well in the sense of like, what would you tell those listening? How do you go about pioneering and how do you get comfortable going where no one has gone before? Like setting, you know, if, whether it is creating a new console service that hasn't existed and there might be some, you know, potential backlash or maybe a little bit of hesitancy or a different career trajectory that isn't necessarily the quote unquote norm. Like what advice would you give to those who are considering setting in a new direction that might be considered, you know, pioneering? Boy, um, so, so that's an excellent question and that's a tough one. This this is going to be a hard one to swallow. So two things. You need to have a little imagination. You need to be be ready to think outside the box. When I graduated from fellowship, I can tell you without a doubt, no one knew what to do with me. They were like, wow, you're so interesting. You're an emergency physician and you're a critical care physician. Wow, you're smart. And you've got all these tricks of the trade that you can bring to the table. But how do I use you? How do I leverage you in my department? And some of it actually can be really intimidating to leaders. And so I had to be prepared to come with, the, show up with a solution and a map demonstrating to my future chair, this is what I'm going to do for you when I show up here. I had to sell myself. So I showed up and I said, hey, you know, I hear that sepsis is not doing very well here. You know, hire me and I'll, and I'll run your sepsis initiatives here. I'll establish one. Oh, do you have ultrasounds here? No, you know, get a couple of ultrasounds. I'll start an ultrasound teaching program here and make sure that everybody knows how to do a fast exam, right? Make sure that if a pregnant woman comes in here that we can rule out ectopic pregnancies. Eyebrows go up and people are intrigued and perhaps then folks will want to bring you on board. But that's the story of my initial, the initial start of my career is having a sense of imagination and bringing that to the table and people will dream with you. And if they don't, they're probably not, that's probably not the right place for you to work, right? But people will dream with you. The second part is being willing to take some risks. These have to be measured risks. So let's just say that venturing into a field that is owned by other specialists is no safe place to be, right? So you can imagine all of the potential colleagues in other disciplines that might have been threatened by an emergency physician trying to pursue a specialty that had been owned by them for for many, many years. I have to be prepared to understand what it meant to step into a position where people might be threatened by me. So I needed to know what my blind blind spots might be, what the threats might be, and how to mitigate those threats, meaning building partnerships, relationships, perhaps do a study together, teach their fellows, mitigate that threat so that they recognize that I was a value. But the reality is, is that you have to take risks. There were no shortage of risks that I've had to take in order to get here. And some of those risks, you know, had consequences. 
bills and consequences that meant that I lost some of my social capital for a while. But I had to think about that well in advance and be willing to either lose that social capital or potentially just basically be able to capitalize on the gains beyond that. So there's a little bit of both, right? So there is the dreaming piece, which means that you have to think outside the box and be willing to bring people along with you. And then there is the rest piece, which could be associated with losses, real losses that other people might have to also take on with you. Okay. All right. I appreciate that. Thank you. I think that's about sums up our time today. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your, your schedule to chat with us and to share your words of advice, as well as your experiences. It's been incredible to listen from, uh, to you as, as well as to learn from you. Really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you.